Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's podcast, we're shining the spotlight on alternative strategies at Fidelity with portfolio managers Brett DeLay and David Way. Both Brett and Dave joined Fidelity in 2008 as research analysts, covering a variety of sectors and managing their respective components of Fidelity Canadian Disciplined Equity Fund. Then in 2019, regulatory changes created an opportunity for them to use their unique skill sets to lead two of Fidelity's liquid alternative strategies. Now, Brett manages Fidelity Market Neutral Alternative Fund, and Dave manages Fidelity Long Short Alternative Fund. On today's show, they join host Rory Poole to share the thesis behind their respective funds and comment on how they're seeking to find winners and capitalize on the potential losers. Today's podcast was recorded on December 8th, 2022, and was actually recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. As this was from a live event, you may hear a slide or two being referenced. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I was thinking maybe we start with just some high-level thoughts on markets. Both of your products have been phenomenal places for investors to be over the course of the past year or so, especially during a difficult period. What went into your outlook for 2022 and how is that potentially changing as we move into 2023? Brett, maybe we'll start with you. So 2022, things are bad. And so well, that's fine, but we got to think about 2023, 2024. And so where we stand now, stimulus has been taken away, interest rates are going up, inflation is running rampant, earnings estimates are probably too high across the board. But the market's also down a lot. And so nothing I said is unknown. And so when I think ahead to 2023, one of the things, probably the main thing I think about is if we're back here in a year from now, are things better, worse, or the same? And for me, I believe the answer is, I think things are gonna get better. And so the way I'm positioning the fund is, I'm keeping that in, in my mind and trying to do it in a risk-controlled way, which we'll get into later. But interest rates are where they are, which is probably the most important thing. It feels like we're getting close to topping out. So I think that at some point next year, that can provide some rep reprieve to the market. And so we need to position ourselves that way now. Great, Dave, maybe to you. Yeah, I think Brett um, really summarized it well. And I think the most important thing when we think about things getting better, um, it's not about is the world better in a year than it is today, but as we look ahead, are things getting less worse? Uh, is the second derivative turning positive? Because as investors, you need to really be prepared for that moment and position the funds uh, for those times, because that's where uh, many of the excess and outsized returns happen. So similar to Brett, my outlook is focused around doing the work on companies um, that I want to own in the portfolio 
ahead of that, that positive turn. And I think you know, there's probably some regional differences and outlooks as well. Um, but I think, you know, it's covered this morning and could leave it at that. Great. And we'll get into more of that uh, throughout our discussion. But let's hop to the products. Brett, we'll start with you and the market neutral alternative fund. Um, you've managed to generate a return of just under 5% in 2022 net of fees. Um, which is a great result and with a volatility that's been about a third that of traditional equities and about half that of traditional bonds when you look at broader indices. Tell us a little bit about the fund as it's obviously quite different from that of your traditional mutual fund. Yeah, sure. So the market neutral alternative fund is a true market neutral. And so what that means is it has a beta of zero, which means it has effectively zero correlation with the underlying stock market. Um, we use equities, that's what we use to comprise the fund. But again, whether the stock market goes up or down has very little bearing on the performance of the fund. Um, the way that we execute this is for every dollar we're given, we go 100% long, $1 long, and $1 short. So the net exposure is zero, and the beta is zero, and we keep it there, we manage that really, really tight. The way that I have structured the fund is through a series of pair trades. And so what I'm trying to do is look for um, similar types of stocks, so they could be in similar industries, similar profiles, and trying to understand, is there a po point in time where I can identify relative differences in what could be the performance of them? So you could have two very similar stocks operating in the same industry. Maybe one's going through a product cycle, one's got a bad balance sheet, one's a lot cheaper than the other one, one's more expensive than the other one. These are the types of anomalies that I try and capitalize on. And in doing so, again, make sure that the net exposure and correlation with the underlying markets, stock markets, bond markets, commodities, Bitcoin, you name it, is zero. That's great. And I want to talk a little bit more about pair trading just to give people a better idea of conceptually what a pair trade looks like. And I think we have an example for that. Um, can you maybe walk us through this example and, and talk a little bit about some of the nuances associated with it? This here is an example of a pair trade where I'm long a company called MongoDB and short a company called Asana. Um, when I put this trade on, these are both high growth and they were very high multiple tech stocks. And we know what that market has looked like in 2022. And so both of these companies were trading at extreme valuations, 30 times EV to sales. They're both growing rapidly. At the point in time, their outlooks for growth were around 80% each, so high, high growth. Um, but the profiles are very different. MongoDB is a true market leader in the field that they, are, that they are in. There's very few, if any, real competitors for them. The market is large. The management team is exceptional. And they were operating at just about break-even. Asana, growing really fast, really expensive, but in a very, very competitive market. There's actually three public companies that do the same thing and probably like five or six very, very large privates that do the same thing. So um, I didn't think that their growth was as durable as what MongoDB's growth uh, will be. And, and the management team was fine. The balance sheet was not great. And this company was burning a lot of money, like $100 million a quarter. And so um, what, I've done, what I did here when I constructed this trade is they're both really expensive. I get that. So I've neutralized that risk by going long one of these expensive companies and short another expensive company. So whether 30 times EV to sales is the right number for this type of stock actually doesn't matter. My decision is, over a long period of time, at the same price, do I want to own MongoDB or do I want to own Asana? I kind of think of it as 
let's say I walked into a car dealership and there's a Porsche and there's a Chevy and they're both trading at the same price. I know which one I should own. And that's exactly what this is and that's kind of exactly what the fund is made up in. It's a series of these types of trades just over and over and over again. And obviously this was a very lucrative trade, which is, which is great, but there was a period of time there if you back up towards, call it Q4 of 21, where it was actually going against you and that the short being Asana was obviously outperforming that of the long being MongoDB. How do you kind of manage through those scenarios? You know, the one thing we try and do at Fidelity is know our companies really, really well. And so we have an analyst team that covers these stocks. They know them in depth. Um, MongoDB was rated a buy from our analyst. Asana was rated a sell from our analyst. And so even through the period where the trade was going against me, you know, I kept, we kept uh, having our updates, looking at the numbers. Is anything changing? What are we missing? Nothing. Um, are the growth rates diverging? No. Is management quality getting better? No. So the thesis was intact. And so we just had to kind of stand by it. Position sizing is key. And so making sure that these volatile type stocks have uh, relatively smaller weights so we can understand that if there is a period where it goes against us, it's not gonna hurt us and we can kind of ride it through and just count on the fundamentals. And so, you know, over time, both stocks were bad. They were high growth tech stocks this year, they were terrible. MongoDB was not a very good stock. During the period I had this trade on, it went down 10%. However, Asana was a much, much worse stock. It went down 80%. So the net profit to the fund is the difference between that, 70%. I'll bug you more about that sizing factor that you mentioned later, um, but maybe just to kind of tie things up before we move on to Dave, from your perspective, where does this fund kind of potentially serve a purpose for an investor? I kind of think of this fund as almost like a different asset class. We use equities, but it doesn't behave like the stock market. And we manage that. We make sure that's the case. We have a correlation of zero. Um, we're trying to achieve something in the range of mid-single-digit returns. And if we're doing our job correctly, controlling, controlling risks, we think we can do it in a way that um, has lower volatility. And so this year, that's kind of been the case, a volatility profile that's a fifth of the underlying equity markets. And so what that can add to someone's portfolio, you know, in a case like this year, adding this uh, solution to part of the broader suite with lower risk. That's what having a non-correlated asset can provide. Dave, let's move to you and we'll talk about the long-short alternative fund. You've also produced some great results, um, not only within 2022, uh, but if you go back to kind of the fund's launch, outperforming broader equity markets with lower drawdowns, which I think is music to a lot of people's ears, your fund is obviously very different from what Brett's doing through the market neutral alternative fund. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what you potentially think is a little bit unique towards your approach? So my fund is um, a fund similar to Brett's in the sense that I have a long and a short portfolio. But what I'm looking to achieve or how I execute my strategy is going out for $100 of client assets in general, buying around $130 of stocks on the long side and funding that extra $30 by shorting um, $30 in stocks that I think are going to underperform. And the objective of the fund over time is to generate capital appreciation and total returns for unit holders um, that are attractive relative to your equity alternatives uh, with lower volatility. Because unlike managing a long-only fund, the main thing that I can have in my toolkit is this additional ability to short stocks, which is something as an analyst I was really interested um, in doing. 
And also from a performance perspective, I had really good numbers on the short side. And so I'm really passionate about um, finding companies that you know, are set to underperform the market and using that to fund larger positions in the best ideas that come out of my investment process, as well as working with other portfolio managers and, and the broader Fidelity investment team. That's great. And I believe you have an example for you as well, uh, one specifically that, it's, that is a company that you are short for a period of time. I'm wondering if you can talk about this a little bit and, and try and relate some of it towards a potential catalyst that you look yeah. for in a short position. So while the, the fund's positioning, I might have 50, 50 or so long positions of about 2.5% and 30 to 40 short positions of you know, around 1% each, um, beyond that, there's always you know, a larger number of stocks that you're looking for uh, an entry point, a place in time where you can either um, buy, go long the stock because you're really excited about it or because you think there's a really attractive shorting opportunity. And so this example, Carvana, it's one of my favorite ones. Um, I covered consumer discretionary as an analyst. I actually followed this IPO as an analyst. And I was fascinated by the success of this business because if you just read the prospectus, you'd learn that the chairman um, actually had a securities fraud conviction related to the savings and loan crisis. And there were a number of um, really unnecessary and suspicious uh, related party uh, interactions between the family's private company and this public company. Um, but it had a great story to tell. It was growing revenues really quickly. Uh, people were very excited. They didn't worry so much about the fact that every time they grew, they actually lost more money. Um, there was a point in time where companies with negative unit economics were in favor because there was some promise that five or 10 years from now, the business would suddenly become profitable. And so this was one that I followed but didn't short for a very long time. And you can see here as I built this position, um, I was looking for an inflection point in the fundamentals, a place in time where investors would be forced to reckon with the fact that this was never going to be um, a profitable company like they thought it would be. So I built the position over you know, a few months period of time um, looking for that entry point. You, know, you never get it perfectly right, but I think my average entry price into shorting the stock was around $320 uh, during that period. And then as we got into the end of 2021, um, the proverbial wheels fell off this uh, used car uh, virtual dealer. And you know, the problem started to mount and the cracks started to show uh, the company made a multi-billion dollar acquisition um, that was meant to sort of paper over some of these cracks, but in the process took on debt that you know, is really hurting the company. And we can sort of see how it's played out um, over time. And I think probably the most recent stock price is somewhere around $7 from that um, $320 share price a little over a year ago. So this was one where it was clearly a pandemic winner. Um, it was also benefiting from you know, significant interest in growth stocks, but it's about doing the work around the industry to try to identify companies that are going to be vulnerable when things get worse. And we've seen uh, pretty interesting declines in used car pricing in the, really started about six months ago. Um, and so you look around the industry, do you look at car dealers? Do you look at the OEMs, the manufacturers of vehicles, or do you look at companies with fragile balance sheets and questionable business models as a way to express um, sort of a short view on an individual sector? Like, 
Yet yesterday, uh, on the way here, I drove past, there's a company called Mannheim, and they do these like um, wholesale auctions where like thousands of used cars go every day. And it's just interesting to see you know, how big this industry is. And that's actually a pretty good business. It's a private company, but it's a pretty good business. And this is one that is clearly a fragile business in an industry facing big headwinds um, and has a lot of debt. So that's an example of a company that you can short over time and you, know, you can yield some pretty significant results. Most certainly. And similar question to what I asked Brett, where does this product potentially help an investor or where does it fit? And is that something that you think about when you're managing the fund? So the genesis of this fund is that I wanted to have a product that, number one, I, I managed the whole fund, number two, that I was able to short, and number three, that I was able to express like my investment approach, which is to be confident about the future. I think over time we should see GDP growth and innovation and all the things that fuel revenue and earnings growth for businesses over time that moves stock markets higher over time, while at the same time having a way to express my like paranoia about what can go wrong in the short run. I really like to manage the volatility of the fund and how I invest, um, but at the same time being able to achieve you know, my personal goal, I have 100% of my assets in this fund, and I'm investing on behalf of, I have an 11-year-old son with autism who has just a ton of need that he's going to, you know, require funding for 10, 15 years from now. And what I want to prove to myself is that I can demonstrate consistent returns in the fund over shorter periods of time, like one, three, and five years, while at the same time keeping my eye on the ball of that longer-term financial goal. So I think the product fits Within the equity sleeve of the portfolio, this is not a, um, a yielding, it's not a dividend-focused strategy, so this would be more on the capital appreciation side. But I think this fits into the sleep-at-night equity allocation, where you have a different tool set, a different exposure to the market, um, and hopefully, over time, uh, better returns than would be available in your alternative. Yeah, and I think that if there's one term I think of when I think of your product, um, it's consistency, and so great job in that sense. Let's try and marry a little bit about what we just talked about from a product standpoint uh, or the construction of the product standpoint and talk and relate that to what you mentioned at the beginning in terms of how you're seeing markets at large. So kind of said in another way, how do those initial comments or broader thoughts around markets potentially materialize in your current positioning? Brett? I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. So kind of echoing where we started the conversation, I'm using the market neutral alternative toolkit to be able to sort of start to play offense within, within my portfolio, but in a risk controlled way. And so I was actually sitting in on Steve's presentation earlier, and he kind of mentioned areas of the market that he's interested in being industrials and consumer discretionary. And those are two areas that I would also echo a little bit different parts of those uh, sectors. Um, but basically what I'm trying to find right now are stocks that they don't sound great. The balance sheets are fine. Earnings estimates are too high. We know that. But there's in these sectors specifically, there's groups of these stocks that are real businesses that are going to be around that are trading at high single digit PE multiples. We know the earnings are too high. Let's say they're 50% too high. Then the stocks are still trading at 13, 14, 15 times earnings at the bottom with a good balance sheet. I think those are the types of names we need to start owning now. On the other side of that is the stuff that sounds really good, has held in really well. Um, the earnings are very sort of durable and clear, clear cut. 
but they're really expensive. I call these expensive defensives. So examples would be consumer staples companies. They grow 3% a year, and some of them are trading at like 25 times earnings, 27 times earnings. They sound good, but I don't think that if in the next year the market kind of dynamic starts to change, I don't think they're going to outperform the companies that I'm long. They might not go down, but they don't have to. What I'm trying to do is just capture the spread, the difference in returns between the stocks I'm long and the stocks I'm short. So if I'm right and the cyclical stocks trading at discounted PEs with good balance sheets go up more than the safe haven staples, I think that's a way to make money. It's a rather uncomfortable portfolio right now because I'm buying things that don't sound great and selling things that sound great. But because it's uncomfortable, it probably means it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that level of uncomfort has translated into great results. Dave, maybe I'll throw it over to you. Whether it's long, shorts, kind of what are you thinking about and where are you going right now? One of the things that we're always looking to do at Fidelity is try to identify you know, a theme that we all can see as being likely. I think it's probably likely that the Canadian economy will face difficult periods as we really absorb the interest rate hikes that we've seen. Um, and without trying to predict the, the path of the Fed, I think you had smarter speakers on that this morning, what you can predict is what happens to individual businesses that we know well. And so we have a great analyst team and it actually presents uh, opportunities on both the long and the short side. And you know, it's not always just about the banks. Um, what you can do is you can look at retailers that might be really well positioned to deal with a tougher economic period. Um, you know, one of my, as of the last disclosure period, you know, one of my, you know, top five positions was, you know, a company we all know, Dollarama. And one of the great things about this business has been there were a lot of fears about how they would handle inflation. Um, I covered that business. I'd been inside all of their warehouses and I know all their management team. And I understood how the buying process worked and how their logistics worked in a way that gave me co confidence that they would be able to overcome um, the inflation that we've seen in the system. And you know, then what happens, you layer on an additional thesis point, and this is sometimes what happens when you own a great company. You expect a great thing to happen, it materializes, and then there's another avenue for returns. And in the case of you know, Dollarama, one of the things that we've started to see is trade down, where people are price shopping, some more of the consumables that are part of their day-to-day -day lives in response to tougher economic conditions. So they're actually a beneficiary of that. Um, so you can look at where the customer is moving to for an opportunity on the long side, and you can look at where customers are moving from. So you know, things that are you know, higher priced or you know, more premium type uh, products that you could buy at Dollarama, or moving away from the post-COVID period of outdoor recreation and do-it-yourself home improvement. And so there's actually a really great opportunity where you, you do the same work and it gives you opportunities both on the long and the short side. And it's not just necessarily in the same sector. Like you can look at construction equipment um, where you have companies, let's say like Finning, um, which are exposed to end markets that could be really good in a couple of years. And they're, they're like, okay now, um, and business is fine, and the valuation is very undemanding. And you could look at competitors like Toromont, which have been great stocks. If you've owned Toromont for a long time, you've done really well because it's a well-managed business. It's a, you know, being a Caterpillar dealership, which both Finning and Toromont are, it's a pretty good business over time. Um, but Toromont's generally exposed to Ontario and Quebec construction, and I think we can all place our bets on the direction of travel there. So you can own similar businesses 
um, that are exposed to different end markets, where if oil continues to be strong and let's say copper rebounds, that would be a big benefit to finning. And if we see a slowdown in construction, you could see you know, some business challenges for Toromon. And the company has a high valuation. I think the only thing I would add to Brett's point is like where I'm really most uncomfortable is if you own a stock that's you know, a quality business, trading at 25 times earnings, chances are it's in a lot of people's top tens, um, with interest rates where they are, and with the opportunity set that's emerging in cheaper companies that you know, are actually starting to turn the corner, um, I'm actually the most uncomfortable in those sort of stable compounders that have served investors so well for so long. And I think that's really kind of the opportunity here to own an actively managed product where we can start to make that transition. We can manage risk in a you know, very strong, you know, fidelity approved way. And we have the opportunity to not necessarily need to get the timing right, whether it's Brett doing well on the market neutral side or on my product where I can go long something that I'm excited about you know, two years from now um, or one to two years from now, and I can short something that will protect the fund's capital if this thesis takes a little bit longer to play out than I expect. So I think it's kind of the perfect time to consider these products. I agree, and I think that if I were to look back over this morning, probably the most used term by anybody up here has been interest rates. So I wanna ask Brett a quick question about interest rates, not necessarily what you think about the direction over the shorter term, but like what type of an impact it has on your fund. Like obviously rising interest rates impacts things like the cost of capital for a business or the discount rate to which you're using to value a particular stock. But in terms of your fund structure, I know rising interest rates impacts it in another way. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. Yeah. So, you know, plenty of folks have spoke about the impact on uprising interest rates on stock market valuations. That's not the question that Rory's asking. Um, rising interest rates is actually a nice sweetener for the market neutral alternative fund. It's also a sweetener for Dave's fund. And so the mechanics of, of what we're doing is that dollar that we get invested, we buy a dollar of securities and we short or sell a dollar of securities. When we sell that dollar of securities, we get cash for our sale that comes into the fund, that stays into the fund. That cash gets invested in super vanilla, super conservative, super liquid overnight T-bills. And so for the first couple years that we were running the strategy, interest rates were zero, we weren't really getting much of a yield on that cash. That dynamic has completely changed in the last eight months. And now we're generating um, a, quite a nice yield pickup on that cash that's actually very meaningful. So for the unit holders of the fund, you're getting yield from the higher interest rate uh, environment via the proceeds from the short sale. And on top of that, you're getting the alpha from the stock picking. So it's a nice sweetener and it's a, it's a great benefit. So it's almost like a fully embedded money market fund within your product to a degree. Let's talk about the team and research, switch things up a little bit. Probably fair to say that with these funds, it's much of the same, but there's also some differences, both in terms of how it's being utilized, uh, but also some additional unique resources that come along with them. You both started around the same time in 2008, as Gord mentioned. So being that you're both products of the system, which I'm now realizing sounds a lot more robotic than I had initially planned, I'm sure our audience, though, would be interested to hear uh, any thoughts that you have uh, around kind of the dynamic and how the culture works. Brett, maybe we'll go to you. We have a, a vast team of research analysts um, across the globe. Um, and their job is to cover a certain sector. So you could be an uh, analyst that covers the tech sector, healthcare specialist. 
And so they're looking at you know, a similar group of stocks, similar types of businesses, and they rate them along a scale from buys to sells. And so like for me, what I just said sounds exactly like what I'm doing in my fund, looking at similar types of stocks, but trying to identify valuation discrepancies, growth discrepancies, similar groups of businesses, some are buys, some are sells. And so what um, the, the ability to short gives Dave and I and Dan in our toolkit is the ability to capitalize on this in ways that we weren't able to do in the past. Basically what I'm saying is we can now short or sell ourselves. So it's the same process, the same research, the same resources we've been using for the last 20 years. It's just now we have more tools to implement. I'd add to it that you know, it might surprise people just because we've had liquid alternatives here for uh, a couple of years available to clients, but uh, Fidelity has been shorting stocks for a long time, and we actually have a dedicated short-selling research team. So um, in addition to everything Brett said, we have people who are dedicated to looking at short ideas and having active ratings, uh, working often in conjunction with the sector analyst who covers the sector, uh, but there are some specialized uh, research and screening tools uh, that help uh, these analysts who often have uh, work experience at hedge funds and long short strategies. So we have a really great bench. Um, we've got other portfolio managers. So I was in London last week uh, for a few days visiting our office there. And over the course of three days, I had like half hour meetings from like you know 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. every day meeting all of the analysts who I know from Zoom calls and I know their ratings, but going through their sectors, looking at opportunities that might not be in their coverage that could help the fund. And you just get this breadth of detailed knowledge that helps a portfolio manager kind of put the pieces together to build a fund that can outperform over time. And I think the portfolio manager team is actually one of the more underappreciated pieces. So you know, as part of those meetings, I sat down with four or five portfolio managers there who all run long short strategies as well. So there's a really deep internal bench that goes beyond just the analyst ratings. And then also externally, um, there are some boutique uh, research firms that specialize in short selling research. Um, these are not the like smash and grab Twitter accounts that you know, post something like a 60 page report claiming that you know, everything about a certain company is a fraud. Um, but these are companies um, that have analysts doing very serious uh, fundamental research available to a very limited number of subscribers. Um, so as a result, they're quite actionable. And for me, when everything lines up, like my portfolio manager view, the internal analyst view, a short selling analyst, and perhaps one of my trusted sort of third party advisors, when those things line up, um, it's really great because it gives you conviction to make it a more meaningful position and therefore have more positive impact on the fund over time. So there's obviously a lot of influences internally in terms of working with each other. Dave, you mentioned some external as well. Do you have any external influences? I mean, we always hear influential investors dropped at these events, whether it be Buffett um, or otherwise. And just curious if there's anyone else who uh, drives your philosophy towards investing. So I, I tend to believe we've got a very talented group of investors at Fidelity that I work with day in, day out, I've been working with them for the past 14 years. They're the folks that I learned from. Um, I don't put too much credence into you know, some of the star PMs that are external or you know, great presentations. That to me is like, it's Christmas time. That's the Christmas card, right? It's shiny, it's nice, everybody's smiling, there's fancy sweaters, it's not real life. 
what I get to see day in and day out is real life. And that's where we learn, that's where we learn the process, that's where we identify what actually happens to make a good decision. So I follow and have learned from everyone that you're gonna hear speaking over the course of these two days. You know, I've learned from Dave. Dave is super talented at identifying a business and taking it right down to the nuts and saying, is this a good business? He talked about Carvana where he figured out for pretty quickly it wasn't. He alluded to Dollarama, he's being a little bit humble. He was very early to figure out Dollarama as something absolutely magical. And he figured it out five, six years before the market did. I think the market's there now. Um, so yeah, I place a lot more effort on, on things that I can see and live day to day. Fair enough. Is there risk of shorts blowing up with hashtag Wall Street bets type investors throwing off expectations? How do you mitigate around this? So I really like Reddit. I've been on Reddit a, a long time and it's, um, you know, I'm interested in coffee and it's, people are very passionate about it. And what you find is it's a really strong community and it normally just lives in the shadows of like, you know, weird hobbies like coffee, but every once in a while it interacts with the financial markets in a really big way. And so, um, you know, we saw with like GameStop and AMC uh, environments where um, investors were um, not operating under the fundamental analysis uh, type structure where we typically like to operate, where you can assume that people are mostly rational over time. And so for me, I largely, you know, avoid those stocks. Like I don't want to be like a crowded theater when the fire starts. So my shorts tend to be a little more idiosyncratic, companies you may not have heard a lot about before, companies certainly that aren't being discussed on Wall Street Bets. And that way I can ensure that, you know, I'm in an empty theater with my seat near the exit. So, you know, whether things go well or not on that individual position, I'm not encumbered or run over by a crowd. And, you know, funnily enough, I actually owned a, a, a mall read when the Wall Street bets thing, you know, first happened. And I was actually pretty happy about it because the stock doubled in three days on a thesis that I thought might take three years. So I'd like to thank them for their, their help. Um, but, but largely, like, and like, just give me a good serious for a second, like, what you're always worried about with a short is how things can go materially wrong over a very short period of time and cause a permanent loss of capital. Like, they sell the business. Like, so one of my first screens are like, what are the odds that this company is going to be sold uh, or bought by somebody at a big premium? And that will largely be something where I'm like, I'm not gonna own a stock that has some odds of being taken out. Um, but if there is still a very strong short thesis, even if there is a takeout risk, you'll manage the position to be small. Like my goal as a portfolio manager is that if I have one to two positions that are going against me in a very meaningful way, that you won't see it at the fund level. It's like where they talk about like ducks, where it's like they're calm on the surface and paddling furiously underwater. And that's, that's what we do. We're looking at all of our positions, making sure that they're sized appropriately. We get like a 60 page risk deck um, all the time showing us what our intended and unintended factor exposures and risk metrics are. So we have a very supportive risk team, a supportive investment team, all to ensure that we kind of don't find ourselves, you know, as often as possible in those positions where you, you know, you wake up and the stock your shorts up, up 50%. And if it does happen, you ask yourself, is this temporary or is it permanent? Um, and a lot of times it's just temporary. And so you stomach the individual stock volatility with the confidence that it's not affecting the whole fund and you wait for your thesis to play out. And you know, Brett did a great job explaining how that happens in his fund. Great, Brett, do you have any comments on meme stocks? And maybe as a second part to the question, um, Dave mentioned kind of 
risk parameters and our approach towards monitoring some of those types of things. Given the nature of your fund, obviously that's something that's very important. Like what are the types of metrics that you watch within your fund or what do you do in order to ensure um, avoiding unwanted risk and taking on wanted risk as much as possible? I think Dave highlighted, we, we have very thorough risk reports. Um, we know the cost of borrow on each of on every security in the market. And so the higher the cost of borrow, the more heavily shorted it is, the more crowded it is, the more risky of a short it is. And so those are areas that I just tend to avoid. And I think Dave says he does the same thing. We have specialized software that helps identify what stocks are crowded. Um, but I think what it all kind of comes down to is shorting doesn't have to be risky. If you implement it in a certain way, keep track of your risk profiles, position size accordingly, it can actually help control risk. It's something we've seen in both of our funds over the course of the last year. The market's been bad, but our ability to short has helped lower our volatility and enhance our returns. Dave, maybe I'll ask you a question we always get for long short funds, managing gross and net exposure. Like how do you go about that and how is it kind of impactful mm -hmm. in terms of your approach within the fund? For me, the biggest thing to think about is, you know, net exposure, which is sort of like how exposed to you are on the market. So if you have 130% long and 30% short, you have 100% net exposure. And then you add those two sleeves together and say, for every $100 of client assets, you have $160 investing. So the bigger your gross exposure, um, the bigger in the impact will be of your stock picking and portfolio performance relative to the market. So it's a source of opportunity. So when things are, um, you know, when you have, feel like you have a really strong uh, view of where the market is headed and where your individual portfolio is headed, a larger gross exposure gives you the opportunity to generate uh, bigger returns that would be available in a long-only fund. Um, but if you feel like you're uh, more uncertain or you want to be more focused on the downside volatility of the fund, you can bring in your gross exposure. So you can have, you know, at the last disclosure, you would see that my gross exposure is about 120, was, was about 120%, um, I think, and my net exposure was running around 80% because I was uncertain about the path of interest rates and the impact it would have on the market. And by managing that, um, I was able to still have exposure to the market. Like nobody, I don't think anybody would have predicted the market would go up 10% in uh, November or whatever it did. Um, but the fund, even though it was not fully exposed to the market, still participated in the, that upside. Um, and so the fund was positioned to kind of benefit from, you know, doing well when the market went down and also keeping up with the market when it went up. Brett, tech right now. Like obviously it's been an area of focus for folks given the difficulties this year. You worked with Mark for a number of years and had a lot of success as a technology investor, as an analyst. Um, how are you kind of approaching that area right now? And are there any subsectors within that that are looking kind of appealing or not so much? One of the things I've done over the last little while is some of the, the kind of unprofitable lower quality stocks that have gotten, you know, they're down 80%. I've covered them, I've moved on from them. They could go to zero, they might, some will. Um, but I think we've squeezed enough juice from that lemon. Um, some of the better quality stocks that are still very expensive, I'm not quite there yet. They don't have a valuation floor like other areas of the market do that I touched on earlier. Within tech, I think that um, semiconductors is an area that actually does have that valuation floor. They're very cyclical. We're in the middle of a downturn. A typical downturn, asks, downturn lasts five to seven quarters. We're four quarters in, which means it's going to bottom in a year, which means we need to own them now. Um, so those are some examples of 
areas of opportunity. Congratulations on your great results in a challenging market in particular. And I know that on behalf of the firm and all of our advisor clients, we're thrilled to have you both as managers of these differentiated strategies for many years to come. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.